Hey, let's open up in a word of prayer now that we all have a new perspective on life. All right, let's pray and ask God to bless this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for the newness that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, you tell us that because of our faith in Jesus, our Savior, that we are a brand new creation. That old things have gone and that new has come. God, I pray that that newness, that that life that is ours through Christ would be manifested in us. That You would fill us, Lord, with Your Spirit. Help us to live and breathe and move and have our being in You. God, I pray for this morning's time together in Your Word that it would be new and fresh and different. Something that would challenge us as we learn about history, but as we try to avoid repeating history. I pray, Lord, that You'd bless our time together as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. We're going to get a nice big handout today. Double-sided. And we're going to be going over a great history lesson. So open up your Bible to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. The book of Daniel, chapter 5. Everybody's going to need a Bible, so grab it in the pew back in front of you if you don't have one. Daniel, chapter 5. We're going to be in our last uh, chapter in the book of Daniel with respect to the topic of Babylon. The last element of their history, as a matter of fact. Now, when I was a, grand, when I was a, a young boy, um, I was always going over to my grandfather's house. Grandpa Anderson, he was called Swede by all those who knew him because he was a great big Swedish man. And I remember his hands. His hands were so big. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I'm told, that, I'm told that two things never stop growing on you. Your ears and your hands. They just keep getting bigger as time goes by. And my grandfather's hands were so big, every time I looked at him, I'd, I'd take his hand and I'd look at it, and I was just astounded at how large and, and firm and, and muscular his hands were. Today, in our story in Daniel, we're going to see a hand. And as a kid, I, I looked at my grandfather's hand and I feared that hand. I feared that hand. I feared when he might discipline me with that hand, if you know what I mean. And in the book of Daniel today, chapter 5, we're going to see another hand of judgment that King Belshazzar of Babylon sees. And this hand of judgment is going to be upon the kingdom of Babylon. The title of my message today is The Hand of Judgment upon Babylon. Let's read together in chapter 5 of Daniel, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter, but we're going to move rather quickly, so hang with me. Verse 1 of chapter 5 in the book of Daniel says this, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from those vessels. Verse 3, Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of the Lord which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. 
Who is this King Belshazzar? Who is this King Belshazzar? Do you realize that up until the mid-1950s or so, do you realize that liberal scholars of all stripes pointed at chapter 5 of Daniel and said, see, right there, chapter 5 of Daniel proves that the Bible's in error. Do you know that? Up until 60 years ago, liberal scholarship would point at Daniel chapter 5 and say, aha, this is where we can prove without a doubt that the Bible is wrong historically. Because according to them, up until 1950, they would claim there was no King Belshazzar. There was no King Belshazzar. And in fact, history across the centuries, up until that point, had demonstrated that. There was no King Belshazzar. In fact, you looked at historical record after historical record prior to the 1950s, there was no record of a King Belshazzar except in Daniel chapter 5. And so many scholars would mock the Bible at this point and say this, when when asked, how do you know the Bible's not true? They'd say Daniel chapter 5. There was no King Belshazzar. But then, something was discovered. Something was discovered in ancient Babylon known as the Nabonidus Cylinder. And on this cylinder, sure enough, that was translated in the mid-1950s, was the mention of one king of Babylon named, you guessed it, Belshazzar. Belshazzar had been found. And all of a sudden, all those critics of the Bible were now looking face-to-face at evidence on a cylinder in Babylon of this king or co-regent of Babylon. Now, who is he? Who is this Belshazzar? Well, later on in chapter 5, we're going to see that he is described as a son of his father, Nebuchadnezzar. But the word father or ab in Hebrew can literally mean father. It can mean grandfather. It can mean forefather. So there's a a variety of uh, meanings that the word ab can have in the Old Testament. But let's go through the kings for just a second. First, we had Nebuchadnezzar, right? And we see Nebuchadnezzar on your outline there at the very top. We're going over the kings of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar from 605 to 562 B.C. We've been going through the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 1, 2, 3, and 4. Here we are in chapter 5. After Nebuchadnezzar, after he uh, passed, his son, evil Merodach, came, and, uh, or Amal Merodach, depending on how you translate it. He was also a king of Babylon, and his namesake speaks in English at least, uh, to the kind of reign that he had. He was also known as a man of Marduk, or a man of their god in Babylon. Evil Merodach, man of Marduk. He was killed by his brother-in-law, Negrelaser. Okay, And Negrelaser had a reign of approximately, was that, four years? And interestingly enough, Negrelaser, who killed the king before him, his brother-in-law, Negrelaser's name meant protect the king. So I guess uh, he didn't really fulfill his namesake so much. After him came a man named Labashi Marduk, again after the god of the Babylonians. He was murdered by a man named Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus was not a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, the first of those line of kings who did not come from Nebuchadnezzar. And so what did Nabonidus do when he took control of the throne? He grabbed one of Nebuchadnezzar's widows or perhaps a daughter married her to solidify that, bloodly, that, that, that bloodline of Nebuchadnezzar. He married either Nebuchadnezzar's widow or his daughter. Scholars are dispute, dispute that back and forth. 
In any event, he grabbed a person from the line of Nebuchadnezzar, married her, and had a son named Belshazzar. Belshazzar. And you say, but wait a minute, Neil. You got your dates wrong here. Look, Nabonidus ruled from 556 to 539 B.C., but then you say that Belshazzar was king of Babylon from 553 to 539 B.C. How can that be? How can there be two kings in Babylon? Isn't that a discrepancy? The answer is no. It's not a discrepancy at all. In fact, ancient Babylonian and Greek records indicate that Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, was securing border and trade routes southwest of Babylon. So he left the capital one day. He was going to secure additional border and trade routes when he became gravely ill. He became gravely ill in the Arabian town of Tama, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia. To my knowledge, there is still a town named Tema, T-E-I-M-A, in Saudi Arabia today that takes after that ancient city. And as he was traveling, and as he became ill in Tema, he became so gravely ill, Nabonidus did, that he remained there for over a decade, unable to travel. And he sent word back to Babylon. He sent messengers back to Babylon to his son, Belshazzar, and said, in my stead... I need you to rule over the kingdom of Babylon. I'm sick. I can't take care of it. I need you to be co-regent of Babylon. And such co-regency is not without historical support. For the very next king listed in the book of Daniel is King Darius the Mede, who was almost certainly a co-regent of King Cyrus of Persia. And so co-rulership, two kings if you will, was not entirely uncommon in the ancient world, particularly when, the king, when one of the, uh, the kings that preceded the latter one was sick or ill or unable to assume the throne. And so here we are in Daniel 5, entering in to a day in the life of King Belshazzar of Babylon, and we come upon a great feast in the ancient city. Thousands of people enjoying fine wine and food. And they're drinking it up and becoming intoxicated. And Belshazzar calls for his servants and asks them to bring to him the gold and silver vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. His father, his grandfather if you will, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken those items out of the temple and brought them to Babylon where they were securely stored. But Belshazzar said, bring out those items. I want to drink with them. I want to eat with them. And as he did so, he greatly profaned the name of the God of Israel. We pick up the story in verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared. Verse 5. And wrote opposite the lampstand on the palace, excuse me, on on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Suddenly, a hand appears. I picture it like my Grandpa Anderson's hand. This big, huge, boisterous, Swedish hand appears. Not Swedish. Ancient Near Eastern hand appears behind him as he's seated at this great feast. And there's thousands of people in this room 
upon which he's taking, this feast is taking place. And they all start looking behind him and he looks and he sees this hand appear out of nowhere. Perhaps at first being intoxicated, he thought he was simply seeing things. But then others were gasping and they were holding their breath. And he realized that it wasn't just him. That the whole banquet of people were witnessing this with him. Notice the word plaster in verse 5. That's an interesting word there, plaster. Uh, recent excavations of the ancient city of Babylon have been underway for the last century or so. And in fact, now with Iraq as a somewhat democratic society today, thanks in large part to our uh, fine men and women of our uh, military, Iraq, democratized, is allowing more and more excavations to the ancient city of Babylon today. And what they're finding is they're they're being able to map out the ancient city of Babylon. In fact, they've located the palace of the kings of ancient Babylon. And interestingly enough, in this palace, within the palace walls, there was a great room that they found. A great room that measured 56 feet wide and 173 feet long. I don't know how long this, how wide this room is, but I imagine it's about 100 feet, almost 80 feet, Scott. So almost the width, probably the width of between these two columns wide, and 173 feet long. I know that this is at least 173 feet long. A very large banquet room within which many people had gathered for a feast, perhaps. And do you know that in this great room? within the palace of Babylon, they found material on the, de- on the deteriorating walls of that very room. In fact, they found it just opposite the entrance to that room, toward the back in the middle where the king would have sat. And behind him, they found white plaster. Plaster. Verse 5. Upon the plaster of the king's wall. The Bible is demonstrating time and again its accuracy. And like anyone witnessing such a miraculous sign now, the king turning around and seeing the hand writing on the wall of the white plaster, he is terrified. And he's suddenly wondering what in the world is happening. There's a suspension of the natural order. A hand and nothing but a hand is writing a message on the wall to him and all of Babylon. Well, the hand finished the message. And Belshazzar, we pick up the story in verse 7. The king cried aloud, Bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. And he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. How many times? How many times are we going to read this story in Daniel? Right? Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, a dream. And what does he do? Brings in those pagan spiritualists. Come, interpret Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. What does he do? Come, interpret the dream. The pagan mystics, the spiritualists of Babylon, come, tell me what it's about. They can't do it. Chapter 5, here we are. King Belshazzar has a vision, as do the rest of the banquet hall, of a hand writing on a wall. And he says, his first inclination, 
is to turn to the soothsayers, the astrologers of Babylon, and says, come, come, I need you to interpret this for me. Alas, for the third time now in Daniel, the Babylonian mystics cannot explain the truth of this sign. They have no answer. Truth is, the world has no answers. On your outline there, John Wolvert, a quote from his book in Dan- commentary on Daniel, he writes, too often the world, like Belshazzar, is not willing to seek the wisdom of God until its own bankruptcy becomes evident. Then help is sought too late, as in the case of Belshazzar. And the cumulative sin and unbelief which precipitated the crisis in the first place becomes the occasion of its downfall. There was a man last Wednesday, uh, we, we looked out, uh, we got a call from Dustin, as it were, and uh, Dustin called the office and said, there's a man on the 73 freeway and he's about to jump. And so we, we left the office and many of those who were arriving at Awana, we walked out to the parking lot and I could see, we could see on the edge of the 73 freeway, that we have the 5 and then the 73 kind of connects to it and goes over it to the, to the west, to the northwest, and we could see on the edge of one of the pillars uh, over the freeway, about 80 to maybe 100 feet up, was a man with a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand about to jump. And there were police cars everywhere and ambulance and a, I believe a fire truck on the scene. In effect, that man was asking the question, I'm sure he was asking the question, why should I go on living? Why should I go on living? And who can answer that question? Who can answer that question? Why should I go on living? Can the atheist answer that question? Can the secularist answer that question? I don't think so. You know, I was mentioning to the men at Men's Breakfast on Friday, we know the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? When push comes to shove, when you're in war and you're about to be killed by the enemy or you're under heavy attack, I mean, that's the moment where no matter who you are, you're crying out to God for help. There are no atheists in foxholes. And I would submit to you that there are no atheist suicide negotiators either. The man, the policemen who were talking to that man on the ledge, when, they were, when he was asking them, why should I go on living? Do you think they gave him an atheist answer? I don't know. There's nothing for you in this life. Why should I go on living? You know, I don't know. This life is all there is. Go ahead and jump. You think that's the answer they gave him? No. That's not the answer they gave him. There are no secular suicide negotiators. Are they, are they all Christians? I'm, I'm not here to say that. But I'll tell you right now, they don't give the atheist answer. They don't give the secularist answer. They don't give the godless answer because that man would jump. Thank God that man did not jump. Twelve hours later, he surrendered to police and he was uh, taken to a hospital for evaluation. I don't know what's happened since, um, but we should pray for that man, whoever he is. I understand he had a wife and three kids. Thank God he wasn't given a secularist answer to the question of why shouldn't I jump? The world has no answers for you. The world has no answers. And when Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar says, come on over here, spiritualists. Come on over here, mystics. Give me the answer. They're always going to be bankrupt. The world has no answers. The answers are only found in Jesus Christ. Amen? The king cried aloud, come, astrologers, Chaldeans, soothsayers, 
Read the writing. Tell me its interpretation and I'll clothe you with purple. I'll put a chain of gold around your neck like Mr. T. You'll be third ruler in all the kingdom. As I was thinking about doing PowerPoint for this message and I thought better of it, I was trying to find a Mr. T with purple on, but I couldn't find it. But it's better that I didn't do PowerPoint, I guess. <laughs> all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then the king, then the king was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. Note the, note the word thir- third ruler in the kingdom. Did you see that? See the word third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar gives all these accolades out, uh, rewards out, for anybody who can tell him the interpretation. He says, you will be number three. Number three? Why does he say that? It's really interesting because you know when Pharaoh uh, turns to Joseph, he gives him what position in, in all of Egypt? Number two. When Nebuchadnezzar turns to Daniel earlier in chapter 2, it doesn't necessarily indicate it, but he all but gives Daniel what position in all of Babylon? Number 2. When King Herod has Herodias' daughter dancing in front of him and he's clapping and he turns to the daughter and says, I'll give you whatever you want up to how much of the kingdom? Half. You can be up to number 2. But interestingly enough, Belshazzar says, if you tell me the interpretation, you can be number 3. Why? Why? Why is this the first instance in all the Scripture where this happens? In all the ancient Near East where this happens? Because Belshazzar was a co-regent. He was not the only king. His father, Nabonidus, was in Tama. He was sick. And Belshazzar was on the throne alongside, as we look at our list of dates, alongside his father, Nabonidus. The liberal scholars were wrong. There was a King Belshazzar. Daniel attests to it, as did the Nabonidus cylinder that that was revealed in the late 19th century and translated in the 1950s. The Scriptures demonstrate time and again of its veracity. Belshazzar offered number three. You know why? Because he was number two. He was number two. Historical records have proved the Bible time and time and time again. Alas, no one could interpret the writing on the wall. But someone comes to the scene. Notice verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the Spirit of the Holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, and solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, the queen said, and he will give the interpretation. Here we have a new character on scene. She's described as the queen. But of course, earlier in Daniel 5, it was already said that Belshazzar's wives and concubines were there with him. And so it's likely that this queen, who came in the banquet hall late, after the fact, was perhaps Belshazzar's mother. And in fact, she speaks to him more along the lines of what would be described as his mother. 
And so here we have the queen mother, Belshazzar's mom, coming in, bursting through the doors, hearing of the commotion that had been happening. And being the widow or the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, she knew of the one man who could resolve the mystery. She was an eyewitness when Daniel interpreted the dreams and visions of Nebuchadnezzar. And she describes Daniel in the same manner that Nebuchadnezzar describes him in the proclamation of chapter 4. She says, In this man is the Spirit of the Holy God. In this man is light and understanding and wisdom. In this man is an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, literally untying knots in the the ancient Aramaic. He's able to untie knots, I tell you. And she beckons the king to bring in this Daniel. We pick up the story in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now these wise men, the astrologers, they have been brought in before, before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not. They could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretation and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, then you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in all the kingdom. Scholars estimate that by this date in time, right around literally the end of Babylon, 539 B.C., Daniel was probably about 80 years old. 80 years old. And Belshazzar greets him and says, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, or Ab, grandfather perhaps, the king, brought from Judah? It's unclear whether Belshazzar was asking the question rhetorically that he already knew Daniel perhaps and just wanted to present him to the audience or whether he had never met Daniel before. Uh, The the text is somewhat unclear there. In any event, Daniel is brought on scene. He's introduced to the banquet hall. And thousands of people in the palace room are there waiting to see what transpires between the great king and this Old Judean prophet, Daniel. And the king reiterates to Daniel the reward that is due him if he will but interpret the dream. We pick up the story in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. And I, yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, Ab, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that was given him, all peoples, nations and languages tremble in fear before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, He was deposed from His kingly throne and they took His glory from Him. Then He was driven from the sons of men and His heart was made like the beasts 
and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. And they fed him grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. It's kind of an interesting response, isn't it? We'll stop there for a moment. Here we have Belshazzar um, bringing Daniel before the, the thousands in the room, showing him the writing, and says, Daniel, if you can interpret this, I will robe you in purple. I'll put a chain of gold around your neck, and I'll make you number three in all the kingdom. By, by now, Daniel had likely lost his high position under Nebuchadnezzar with the subsequent kings that had probably demoted him over time. And now he was just an old prophet and um, wasn't being paid attention to all that much by the Babylonian people. And the king, the king Belshazzar offers him this great reward if he can but read and interpret the writing. And Daniel says, you know what, I don't want your reward. You can give that to whoever you want. We'll see why he says that in just a moment. And then he proceeds to give him a history lesson. Right? A history lesson. Daniel doesn't even begin the interpretation. Instead, he pauses and before the whole gallery of people, he proceeds to recount to them a story, the story of their great previous king, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Nebuchadnezzar had it all, but his heart was lifted up and his spirit grew hard in pride. And so God took it all away. We've been, re- we've been learning this in our last few messages in the book of Daniel. I encourage you to go back if you've missed any. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar was stricken with a rare disease. We learned about that last week. The rare disease of boanthropy, in which he acted like an animal, a cow in fact. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar ate grass like an ox. He lived on the land until the time came that he confessed that the Most High God was ruler over the kingdom of men and appointed it over whomever he chose. Why this history lesson? Why, why would Daniel take time before the thousands gathered there and before the king Belshazzar? Why would he give this history lesson? It was because history was repeating itself right before their eyes. The pride of Nebuchadnezzar was becoming the pride of Belshazzar. The stubbornness of Nebuchadnezzar was becoming the stubbornness of Belshazzar. The idolatry and the, 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 the profane nature of Nebuchadnezzar's rule was becoming the idolatry and profane nature of Belshazzar when he took vessels, the gold and silver vessels of the Jerusalem temple, and used them for his drunken feast. A history lesson was in order because history was about to repeat itself. Take a look at verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. You knew about this history. Verse 23, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Daniel says, it's you, Belshazzar, who are doing the same thing. 
Your pride, your haughtiness, it reaches to heaven just like King Nebuchadnezzar. And I just want to stop there and just recognize this as such a critical theme in the book of Daniel. It is pride. It is haughtiness. It is thinking of yourself better than another. And I want to ask you that question. Are you struggling with pride? Are you struggling with haughtiness? Do you look upon yourself and think, boy, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. Do you think highly of yourself? Too highly than you ought. So much of Scripture excoriates the sin of pride. Puts down that sin of pride. The Scriptures attest to the fact that the, the pride, they'll be brought low, but it'll be the humble man or woman who is exalted. Let there be no room for pride in your life. None. Not for your accomplishments, not for your job, not for your house, not for your car, not for any of it, not for your kids. How many parents live vicariously through their kids, take great pride because of their kids? It's all because of the Lord. It's all the Lord's doing. And we are but ambassadors, representatives on His behalf. Let us take a cue from our King, Jesus, who for the glory set before Him humbled Himself and took, came to earth taking the form of a servant, of a man, that He might bring reconciliation to all of us by His death and resurrection. Pride was nowhere to be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let it not be found in us. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were men of great pride. They profaned God's name and the temple of the Lord God. Belshazzar brought in those, the, the, the vessels and worshipped them. He worshipped the gods of silver and bronze. And yet, the God who held his, hand, his, his very breath in His hand, He worshipped not. Are we repeating the, the mistakes of those who have come before us? I think, I think too, um, uh, my, uh, my, I remember my parents and I, and Casey and I and my parents, we were having a discussion one day about... Um, about just mistakes that my parents, you know, think that they made and they wanting to, to warn us of those mistakes saying, you know, consider this as you're a parent. Consider this as you go on into adulthood. Consider learning from our mistakes. And we, we as uh, individuals, we all have our parents before us and our grandfathers and grandmothers before us and we can look back and we can see some of the positive things that have come out of their life, some of the, the things of the Lord, and then some of the weaknesses, some of the some of the maybe unflattering uh, elements of their life that we want to remedy. Belshazzar had a history lesson before him and he chose to repeat the mistakes of his fathers. You have a history lesson before you. When you look back at your parents and your grandparents and your aunts and your uncles, what can you take with you that will be good, a good model to follow? And then what can you reject and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the Lord on that matter. I'm not going to repeat that mistake. How often the sins of the father carry over to the son or to the daughter. Let us be a people who takes the good and leaves the bad. Takes what is good and applies it and uses it and grows on it. And then, but, but what was lacking, we reject and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to chart out a better course. Finally, we get 
to the interpretation. Daniel finally gets around to it. Here we are in verse 24. This is Daniel speaking to the king. And he says this, Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, God that is, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. And this is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in all the kingdom. Up until this point, we haven't said anything about that writing, right? We, we talked about the hand and we, we, we mentioned the writing on the wall, but we, we haven't known what it was until here. Here we get the interpretation of that writing. And Daniel quotes it. He says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. The words we read in verse 25 are Aramaic. They are an Aramaic set of words. And they, they don't necessarily go together. It's not like a complete sentence here. In fact, uh, so much of the first half of Daniel was written in Aramaic. Only chapter 1 and I believe it's uh, chapter 7 onward were written in Hebrew. And Aramaic as you may know, was a very common language of that day. It was what's known as the lingua franca of all the ancient Near East and continued to be the language of that day past the time of Jesus Christ, though in different forms. Of course, the fact that Aramaic was the language of the day poses a problem because back in verse 8, what did we read? Look back at verse 8. Back in verse 8. It says this, Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing.'" 